Amen. Well, Happy New Year officially. Uh, glad you're here today. Uh, if you don't know who the person making announcements was, uh, she is one of our key volunteers in our preschool ministry. Uh, her name is Brandy. And this week she gets to celebrate 25 glorious years uh, with a particular person. Uh, <laughs> so, exciting, unbelievable, 25 years. Uh, it's also this week, happening on the same day, uh, on January 9th, uh, it is Law Enforcement Day. So if you know uh, a law enforcement officer, we have several in our church, both active and retired. Uh, thank them for helping uh, to keep our community safe uh, and encourage them, give them a high five. And uh, we're thankful for uh, our police and our state troopers and constables and uh, so many others uh, in our midst. And so make sure you give them a, a big high five this week. I want to share with you as we begin uh, this new year uh, kind of what we're about. It's good to be reminded and we're going to have several reminders over the next few weeks because we're going to be in the book of Acts. Uh, we've kind of walked through the book of Acts the last three years off and on, and we're all the way to Acts 17. Um, so if you got a Bible this morning, feel free to turn there to Acts 17. Uh, we'll get there in just a moment. But uh, as we think about who we are as a church, uh, you, you should connect to a church because you believe in the mission. Uh, you believe in the mission of, of what we're trying to accomplish as a people of God, as a, as a local fellowship of believers. And uh, we talk about the fullness of life as kind of our basic foundational mission, that we want people to experience the fullness of life in Christ. And, and how we accomplish that is really through four kind of key areas of, of Christian living. Uh, one of those is worship, and uh, that's what you're doing today uh, as, a, as a collective group. We call it corporate worship. But as a, a church I served at a number of years ago, we, we talked about worship being a lifestyle, that, that it's my ongoing acknowledgement of God's great love for me. And so I respond to his great love by responding back, giving him and assigning him, declaring his worthiness. He's worthy of my honor and my love and, and my life. And so I worship him. So if you know someone uh, in our church or in our community that, that's not connected to worship, that they're not involved in this on Sunday mornings, encourage them to be here. Say, hey, uh, you're, you're not going to develop as a Christian. You're going to experience the fullness of life if you're not connected with others in, in worship. And then we have uh, our second word is connect, worship, connect. And, and that's why we promote uh, our connect groups. You might have heard them called Sunday school classes also. And so we, we want you to be involved in a group uh, because that's how you share life with one another. Uh, the Bible talks over and over and over again about how we should sharpen one another, how we're there to, to help one another grow. Uh, we're there to lean on each other in times of need. We're there to celebrate with one another. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We weep with those who are weeping. And, and we do that best in a group. It's hard to make that happen in a big setting like that. But in a group, you can do that. And so connect with others in a group. We started two today, which I'm thrilled about. Uh, one was at 930. Hopefully a few of you went to that uh, new one. And there's one going on right now uh, as well. And, and then we want to serve. Uh, Jesus said that I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. 
He, he came to give his life away, and that's what he calls us to do. As I say a lot, the reward for service is more service um, because that models the life of Jesus. And so where are you serving? How are you engaged in giving your life away to others? That might be someplace here in church, uh, like preschool ministry or greeter ministry or helping put out uh, flags uh, on Sunday morning uh, for our guests to be welcomed well. Uh, it could be a number of ways, teaching a, a, a connect group. See, I almost said Sunday school class. Uh, we're, we're trying to make that change. And, and so how can you serve? It could be also in the community. Like, how am I investing in others in the community serving? And the last one we talk about is investment. We worship, connect, invest, and serve. The investment is not about money uh, necessarily, though we do have a calling as believers to, to give generously to the things of God financially. But that investment is more about uh, your own spiritual growth. How, how are you investing in your own relationship with Jesus Christ? Uh, how, how are you growing in the Lord? And, and we as a church want to come alongside you. It's why we do things like Collide for our students next weekend. So that they can not only connect with other Christians in, in middle school and high school here in our community, but so they can grow in their faith and, and be rooted in the things of God as they look at the book of Daniel this weekend. And it's going to be an exciting time. And we offer those opportunities sometimes through church on Wednesday nights, um, through Bible studies and other things that, that I'm able to, to invest in my own spiritual growth because I don't want to remain stagnant. God's called us to become more and more like Jesus Christ every day. And so how am I doing that? How am I investing in my own spiritual life? And so as we think about that as a church, that's kind of who we are. If, if I want to be a person who lives a life of fullness and I impact others, others so that they also can experience the fullness of life through Jesus Christ. And those are four very basic components of, of what my life should look like and what my spiritual growth should be. And, and then a few years ago, we launched on this, this five to seven year vision of, of really narrowing in and saying, okay, what are the things that God's calling us to do over these next few years to really make a giant impact uh, in our city and our surrounding communities? And so we developed a vision statement where we would prepare and send disciple-making missionaries, and that's you. You're a disciple-making missionary. Whether you believe it or not, uh, it's true. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, you're called to be a disciple-maker, one who brings others along with you, and you're also a missionary. You're God's plan for the world, you and me. Uh, we're all, we are God's plan, his only plan, uh, to see the world come to Christ. And so we want to prepare and send disciple-making missionaries who will strengthen families, love their neighbors, and transform communities with the gospel. We've spent a lot of time over the last few years focusing on those first two. Uh, and this year, we really want to narrow in on that last one about transforming our community, reaching our community for Christ, and, and engaging in areas of darkness and need. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage this week in Acts 17. I actually preached it, uh, this same passage, a few years ago when we were doing our capital campaign to raise money uh, to do some big change around here. And uh, you need to keep praying uh, because hopefully the 209 building, which most of that money is going to go to renovate out front, uh, hopefully that'll be here soon uh, because the campaign technically ends next month. We've gotten plenty of money. Thank you for your generosity over these last few years. If you have no idea what that is, that's okay. We'll tell you next time we have a campaign and you can give, okay? Um, so that's okay if you're new, you, you don't know that. But 
Uh, as I, I was researching this, Acts 17, one of my favorite passages, I came across this quote from a, an article in a BBC, the, a British magazine, uh, about what it takes to actually transform a community, what it takes to actually have change occur in a community. This is, this is what the author said. Those engaging a threshold of 3.5%, those engaging a threshold of 3.5% of the population have never failed to bring about change. If you can engage 3.5% of the population, you will enact change. So let's think about just our little Friendswood, city of Friendswood, approximately 40,000 people. 10% of 40,000 is what? 4,000, thank you. There's a few more math majors in here than the first service. Um, 5% of that would be 2,000. So something less than 2,000 people in Friendswood. If we engaged in them related to eternal things, we would flip the city upside down. Less than 2,000 people just in Friendswood. That seems like a lot maybe, but there's several hundred in here, and there was another 150 or so in the first service. So you got 400 people who are trying to impact about 1,500 people. That's not too difficult. Now, if we go to Pearland, the numbers get a little bigger, a little bigger. If we go to Lake City, they're a little bigger also, but let's actually, instead of going larger, let's go smaller and think about 3.5% of Friendswood High School, or Pearland High School, or Dawson, or Bay Area Christian. Let's think about 3.5% of your neighborhood. What would that look like? Or your workplace, or your friend group. 3.5% is not a lot. And every time, this 2019, it's not too old, 3.5% of the population is engaged, change will happen. And that's our calling, is to engage our world, to engage our community, to engage our friends, to engage our high school, to engage our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members who, who don't know Jesus Christ. And that's our mission. That, that, that's our calling. And so with that in mind, as we think about what is it going to take for me to, me to be a part of God's plan, to help change our world, to understand the power of the transforming power of Jesus Christ, what might that look like? Look at Acts chapter 17 as we see Paul and Silas uh, as they go from city to city to city kind of sharing this message of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1, Acts 17. It says, now when they, that's Paul and Silas, the apostle Paul and his buddy Silas, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, in other words, a bunch of the leading women joined the group. 
But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, whatever that is, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, I want to give you some, some geographical understanding here before we dive into the, the dynamics of this crazy little scene here. But Thessalonica is in modern-day Greece. And because all of us are great at geography, I want to show you where that is. So this is Greece on the left here, that big word at the bottom, Athens, the, the birthplace of the modern Olympics. That's where it is. That's the southern tip of Greece. Thessalonica is in the northern part of Greece. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying the book of Philippians. That's the place of Philippi. It's a little to the right. And then next week, we're going to look where Paul and Silas go to Berea, which is over there. So all of that is Greece. Uh, you see in the upper right corner is Istanbul. What country is that? Turkey. And then below that, uh, what country is that that says Asia? Turkey also. Uh, it's a trick question. Uh, Turkey kind of does a little shape like that. And then you can see, if you have good, good eyesight, Macedonia, that still exists today. North Macedonia is a country, uh, one of our own, named Madeline, is actually about to leave, there this, leave to go there this summer uh, to spend her life in mission uh, in that country. And then uh, over to the right is Bulgaria, uh, above Philippi, and then to the left is Albania, all those former Eastern Bloc countries uh, now who are independent. So that's the region. This whole region where Greece and Macedonia and Bulgaria uh, and Albania are today, that's all ancient Macedonia. So when you see Macedonia in the Bible, think Greece, okay? Just that's a good way to think about it, um, and that's to give you some perspective uh, of where we are. And so to go from Philippi to Thessalonica is 100 miles. Uh, back then, it would take about three or four days uh, to walk that, and so they stopped in uh, Amph Amphipolis uh, and Apollonia. Uh, probably no synagogues there, so they just stopped over the night and then kept going. So they make it uh, to Thessalonica, which is a port city. It's a big city. It's still today. It, it exists today. You can go visit Thessalonica uh, today. Uh, it's a big city, a port city, lots of commerce, lots of people, kind of a melting pot of culture and commerce. So you might say it's a pretty important city. If you're going to go share the gospel somewhere, it might be an important place to go because lots of people converge there. And so that's where Paul and Silas end up. It's a free city, and so they, they don't, they're not bound by anyone, which is funny that uh, these rabble-rousers call on Caesar. Uh, it's a free city. They didn't uh, uh, have to pay homage to anyone. But here, Paul and Silas get to this city, and you see in the Scripture, he spends three Sabbaths in the synagogue. So how many weeks is that? Three, right? There's no trick questions today. Um, 
Three Sabbaths means three weeks. So just a casual reading of the scripture, you might think that Paul and Silas only stayed in Thessalonica, Thessalonica for three weeks. Because once they got there, it seems like Jay, the uh, rabble-rousers grabbed him and Jason and then they had to leave town. But in actuality, they were probably there for several months. So he's probably spent the first three weeks trying to work with the Jews and help convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. But that didn't work very well, did it? <laughs> Only a few of them followed him. He probably spent months after that working with the pagans, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And we know because he wrote two letters to the church at Thessalonica, that's our first and second Thessalonians, that, that a lot of those folks came to faith probably after that three-week period. So he more than likely stayed there for several months, even receiving uh, aid from Philippi, from the church at Philippi. And so here we are, this guy, Paul and Silas are there talking to people, trying to convince them of the reality of Jesus Christ. And so what can we learn from this little bitty passage where they get run out of town? What, what can we learn from that? Well, well I want to talk to you about two things that if you and I are going to be people who help transform our community, whatever that looks like, whether that's a, a classroom, whether that's a workplace, uh, whatever, if we're going to see people transformed by the gospel, there's at least two things patterns that I think we can learn from Paul and Silas here. The first one is to have reasoned conversations. If you and I want to make impact in people's lives, we need to be reasonable people. We can't be on Facebook blasting everyone who doesn't think like us. That's not a reasonable conversation. We, we, we can't be on social media telling people how dumb they are. We, we can't be in a, in a public conversation throwing our arms up and arguing with everything and beating people over the head because they don't think like us. No, we need to have reasonable conversations. And Paul spent weeks reasoning with them. He used the scriptures. He used the the truth of the Bible. Now, that's probably easier in the first century than it is the 21st century because who is he talking to first? He was talking to Jews in the synagogue. So they would have had a foundational understanding of the Old Testament. They would have actually believed the Old Testament was true. That's probably not the case with some of the people that you're going to speak with in the 21st century. They, they, they don't believe this to be true but you have to reason with them. You have to use logic and understanding. So we, as the people of God, need to be educated. We, we need to, to explore how can I have a reasonable conversation with someone who asks a very difficult question, who asks those big questions like, why does evil happen? Why is there suffering? How do I know for sure that if I trust Jesus only, that I'm going to spend eternity in heaven and not just have to give up a bunch of stuff and still at the end of the day, I just die and go to the dirt. Like, I have to have some understanding of that even beyond the scripture. But I also need to know the scripture so that I can lean on that for my own sake. And so we need to have reasoned conversations. We need to speak and then we need to Listen. One of our greatest problems today, and 
you're guilty of it like I'm guilty of it in my own household. We don't listen very well. We always want to talk. We always want our opinion to be thrown out there. But to have a reasoned conversation means you listen. And so if you and I want to make a difference for eternity, if we want to see transformation happen, we have reasonable conversations. And then we need to proclaim Jesus as Savior. We don't need to back away from that. We don't need to talk about how if we just come to church or you, you just come to Clyde next weekend, it'll be great and all, all of it. No, there's a decision to be made for every person that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Holy One, the, the one who lived the life. And, and that's what this whole passage is about in a very few sentences, that Paul explained who Jesus was, that he's God, eternal, who came in the flesh, born of a virgin, who lived a life that was perfect, a life that you and I could not live, cannot live, but he lived a perfect life performing miracles, providing teachings, even declaring himself equal with God when he proclaimed that I'm the son of God. And then he died on a cross. He willingly gave his life up as a sacrifice for you, as your substitute, to cover your sin, to pay the penalty of your sin. And then he was resurrected on the third day, conquering sin and death. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who forgives sin, who gives hope. And so Paul spent weeks proclaiming that message. And you and I need to proclaim the same message. That, that Jesus is the one and only Savior. And when you and I do that, some people will listen. Some people will listen. Paul some people listened in the synagogue, a few of the Jews. But then as he spent months afterwards, there were lots of pagans who listened to him, including some influential businesswomen. And so when you and I proclaim Jesus as Savior, some people will pay attention. When you're willing to listen to their hurts and heartaches, their dreams and passions, and actually speak into them from the Word of God in, in a way that's logical, that makes sense, that helps them see exactly who Jesus is, some of them will listen. And some of them will place their faith in Jesus Christ. Because they need hope. They need forgiveness. They need healing. They long for answers to their tough questions. And so when you and I provide that, they want to engage in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But in order for us to do that, we have to actually talk to people. It's hard to be a witness for Jesus if you don't talk to people. It's difficult to do that. And so Paul has these conversations over and over and over again. So we actually have to be connected to people in our community if we want to see transformation. And sometimes that's hard, particularly if most of your friends and your family already have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's difficult. You, you actually have to make an effort. And so that's why I have to make an effort. I, because I'm surrounded by Christians all the time. My workplace... Well, at least most of them. No, I mean, all are all, all. My workplace, my home life, like my family, like everybody's a Christian. So I actually have to work at it. So, you know, it takes work. We have to do that. But that's the calling. That's, that's when transformation occurs. And so when you have some of those serious conversations, 
those real conversations with folks about life and death, when you have those conversations about eternity, let me encourage you. When you proclaim Jesus as the one and only Savior, you're probably going to get a divided response. There are going to be some who welcome it, and there'll be others who reject him, and they might even reject you. Because that's what happened in this situation. A few took to the message, and some went crazy and wanted to have him arrested and killed. Now, hopefully that wouldn't happen here. But that's what's going to happen. Some will embrace Jesus Christ and others will reject him. And, and this scene is surprising to me because I don't know that it would happen in 21st century southeast Houston suburbia. But, but imagine you had a f- missionary friend over to your house or Matt or Katie or me or Randy over to your house. And some people that we had been talking to come bang on your door. And then they actually break into your house in the forest. Like super nice neighborhood, everybody's, you know, good, and they break into your house. And they drag you out because I'm not there. (laughs) They drag you out. That's what happened here. They dragged the homer. Jason, I have a good friend, Jason. I've known him a long time. He's a volleyball coach. And I think about it every time I read this. Like, they drag him out and, and they arrest him. They take him in front of the city council. There's five city magistrates. And they take him before him, like, look, this guy is housing the guy who's proclaiming that there is another king besides Caesar. And his name is Jesus. We can't have this because those guys are turning the world upside down. That's not even possible. Nobody can turn the world upside down except God. Can't do it. But what they're saying is these guys, Paul and Silas, have created problems, disturbances, kind of a revolutionary idea. Uh, They've created those revolutionary ideas everywhere they've been, and now they're trying to do it here. So they're blaming the Christians for anything that's happening in that city. That's a great theme all throughout history. Not as much today. But imagine that's your house that they broke into. And your brother or dad or cousin that they dragged out and tried to get arrested. They've turned the world upside down. Paul and Silas are the reason for all the problems in the city. Just remember, you're never going to please everyone. And some people will take that displeasure to the highest degree. And so what do they do? They're trying to solve this problem. Poor Jason is in big trouble, and so they post bond for him, (laughs) a security deposit, so that he can get out of whatever detainment they have him in. And Paul and Silas leave town. Now, probably part of the agreement for Jason getting released is that Paul never returns to Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul alludes to that idea that he's prohibited from returning to Thessalonica. So imagine that you 
live here or you go visit League City and you create such a disturbance for the gospel that the city leaders of League City say you can never cross the border again. Mm. That'll be tough. It'll be difficult. Or to Pearland, you can never go to Torchies on Pearland Parkway again. <laughs> the East Pearland Chick-fil-A, off limits to you. Like that, that, that's the idea here is that there was such a stand for the gospel that there were people who were against them. And, and, and Paul, as he writes later to the Thessalonians, tells them the result of that little episode. So you would think Paul and Silas get run out of town, everybody might be running scared a little bit, might be challenging days, heartache abounds, but no. No, Paul writes to the church later, and what we have is 1 Thessalonians, and he tells the church at Thessalonica, you are an example to all of Macedonia. Let me remind you what all of Macedonia is. All of Macedonia. All of Greece, all of current Albania, all of North Macedonia, and all of current Bulgaria. Four modern-day countries, this one little church where their buddy Jason got arrested, they're an example to every other church in that region because of their faithfulness, because of their obedience, because of their care for the gospel. When they got accused of turning the city upside down. What a testimony that would be. That someone would come in and say, you are an example to all of the 4B area, which is kind of what our little region is known as, from the beach to the beltway, from the bay to Brazoria County. That you are an example in that whole region because you've held to the gospel, because you engage people with the truth of Jesus Christ. And though you're not going to please everyone, you've made a significant impact for eternity. And so I want to encourage you today as we begin the new year, as you think about 2024, you, you may have been in some situations, and I guarantee you, you will be in some situations where you, not, you, not, you may not be there forever. Maybe that's a class in school. Maybe that's a job. Maybe that's even where you live. You may not be there forever, but you have an opportunity to make an impact for eternity. And so whether you're there for three weeks, three months, three years, or three decades, make it your mission this year to make an impact for eternity, to proclaim the name of Jesus as Savior, because our calling is to be a witness to the power of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul and Silas and these women and a few of the Jews and all the pagans that were there that became Christians, that's what they did. They made an eternal impact. And you and I have that opportunity today to make an eternal impact, whether we're involved in someone's life for three minutes or 30 years. How can I make an impact for eternity with them? How can I bring healing and hope to them? How can I celebrate with them? How can I answer their tough question? There's a famous British author and kind of theologian, apologist, writer. His name is G.K. Chesterton. 
He was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and he said it this way. He said, we don't want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. That's what Paul was looking for, a church that moved the world. And then later on, G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. And that's what we are. We're to be full of life, going against the stream of culture that declares sort of anything and everything is okay. But we have a a better way, and that way is through the person of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to be the ones who bring life, who bring transformation wherever we go. My prayer for you this year is that you make an eternal impact in someone or someone's life in 2024. Will you pray with me?